Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. All right, let's get to it. Genesis chapter 48 is where we are this morning. Finally, after over a year of working our way through, we took a couple breaks in between, but over, I think about a year, we are coming to an end of our long journey through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And today, we're going to kind of at warp speed cover the last three chapters, chapter 48, 49, and 50. And if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones that's in the chair rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep that um, as, as our gift to you. You can find Genesis. Now, come on, it's the first book of the Bible. It's, pre- it's pretty easy to find. But if you're just not that familiar with looking at it or, you know, you're just, you don't want the person next to you to see you flipping around, you can find Genesis 48 on pages 32 or 41 of, of that Bible that's provided for you there. And again, take that as our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. So here's my plan this morning. Um, I'm going to give you an outline up front, but really the, the heart of what I think this text would say to us as a church and the heart of what I pray that I can communicate this morning isn't so much bound up in this, this sort of scheme of this outline that I, I have for us as we work through these three chapters. And it's not so much any particular truth, although we're going to settle down and, and, and look at truths and draw out of this. I want us to get a vision for the goodness of God to his people that we've been working through and seeing develop through the whole book of Genesis that becomes really the theme of the whole Bible. And so I want us to, to see and savor the goodness and the sovereignty and the providence and the beauty, the irresistible beauty of God and what he has done for his people in Christ. Even as we finish up what I think many people would classify as kind of relatively uneventful chapters of the Bible, I pray that today we would, we'd be able to see that. So uh, just a moment, I'm going to pray and then we're going to work our way through it. So put the outline up there. I don't know if you did that. Let's go ahead and for those that love to take notes and get nervous when they think they missed something. I know you're out there. I can see it on you. You guys don't think I can see it on you. I can see it when you, when you feel like there's something to write down and you may be missing out. I can tell you're just confused. You're irritated with me and the person back there that we haven't got it up there long enough. So it's up there. Now's your chance. Write it down. And we're going to work back through that. So we're going to look at blessings spoken promises longed for, and grace given. Blessings spoken, promises longed for, and grace given. And in just a moment, I'm going to pray and read. And again, we want to pray for, as Reynolds did mention so, so well earlier, just thank you for womanhood. We live in a culture and a world where womanhood is uh, under assault, and it is trying to be morphed into just being objectified, and so we, we praise God for the women in Crosspoint. Praise God for the mothers in Crosspoint. And we, and we want to be a family here, and we want to also pray for women that desire to be mothers and that for whatever reason God um, has just not given them the desire of their heart at this particular point. And we pray that God would either, either give them a, a, a baby or maybe God would open up the possibility of adoption Regardless of where you are in that stage of life or that journey, we want to just thank God for, for womanhood. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we, as we get into this text. Father, I, I thank you for your kindness to us in Christ and our long journey as a church through this first book of the Bible that isn't just a collection of moral stories about creation and punishment and rebellion, but but it's actually a picture of the gospel, the good news of how you have created a world that then rebelled against you, not outside of your plan and providence, and in your kindness through your Son, through the promised seed, Christ, you are restoring and reconciling and redeeming a people for your glory and for their eternal joy to be a display of your supreme mercy to the universe. And this book gives us that picture of your plan from eternity past. And I pray today as we end our time in this book that that would stand forth and 
as Logan read for us this morning, that it would satisfy our souls. And Father, finally, I pray for mothers, for women in this room, that, that they would find their identity in Christ alone and that they would know how highly valued and favored they are in this family. So now turn our attention to your word. Speak to us, I pray, God. Stir the affections of people that are trusting in you for Christ this morning. And for those that walked into this room, maybe not trusting in the true and living Son of God, would you, by your kind grace, melt their hard and anxious hearts and open their hearts so that they can finally trust and see Jesus this morning. I pray that you do these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Genesis 48. Verse 1, blessing spoken. Now, I got a little bit, um, uh, I was a little off last week, kind of going back and forth on these glasses. I'm 44 now, and last week was the first time I broke out reading glasses. Here's what I did. I got about 14-point font going on right now, so I don't have to go back and forth. So we're going to give that a try and see how it goes. And if I reach for them, you know that it's not working. All right, Genesis 48, verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and good and satisfying word. Listen to these words. We'll read and stop along the way. Verse 1 of chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, I should have summarized it. I know I do that all the time. I start reading and then I pull you back up and I said, I should have summarized. So remember where we, where we are in Genesis, right? So God has created a world that's fallen and he has, he has by his sovereign grace called one man out of that fallen creation named Abraham, and he said, through this one man, Abraham, you will be my man, and I will make a family through you. I'm going to restore fallen creation through you, and I'm not going to do it mechanically or impersonally from a distance. I am going to come and be your God, and I'm going to, I'm going to reconcile you to myself, and I'm going to give you miraculously a family. And this family is going to be so uh, great in number that it will be, you will have more offspring and more children than even the stars in the sky or the dust in the sand. And I'm going to fill the earth with you and your descendants, Abraham, and they're going to be my family. And through this family, I am going to display my goodness to the onlooking world, to the other peoples. And I'm going to make life in this family so beautiful and so irresistible, what I'm going to do in you is going to be so good and so satisfying that it's going to be like a tool to draw peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation to come and be part of this family. Because this family isn't just so much about being a particular ethnicity, but it's about having faith in God. And so God establishes that family through Abraham and and they, you know, march their way through. And they're, they're just like our family, right? This family isn't perfect. They're jacked up. They got more than crazy uncles. They got whacked out kids. They got all sorts of stuff. And, and Abraham starts to doubt whether or not God is good on his promise. But God finally in his old age gives a child named Isaac. And this Isaac, this child grows up. And, and then he has two sons named Jacob and Esau. And Jacob is the younger son. And he, he's a swindler. He cheats uh, his older brother out of the blessing and tricks his dad. And yet God God still in his kindness favors Jacob. And now Jacob, the, the rest of this story that we've been reading in the second half of Genesis is about Jacob and his sons. And they are a train wreck, these sons. In fact, they're so wicked that they sell their younger brother, Joseph, into slavery. And that's really what we've been reading about for these past couple months as we have been at the end of Genesis. This story of this son, Joseph, who has been completely and uh, just sinfully wronged by his brothers, but yet God, even despite all of the evil that's happening to Joseph, God superintending and working about even the evil events in his life to bring him to a place where he is exalted as the governor of this foreign kingdom, Egypt, which then allows Joseph to be a wise steward of the resources of Egypt and to store up food for a, a a famine and drought that's coming so that when his family, his brothers that wronged him, this, this family of God that God is building, when they are starving and about to die, 
they then come to Joseph and receive salvation by, really, by his grace. They receive, they receive saving by food that Joseph has stored up. And we have this reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers that wronged him and sold him into slavery. And now, in these final chapters, we're just reading about sort of the working out of that reconciliation. And Jacob, the old dying father, is coming to meet and has met his son, and now he's about to die. And he's going to bless his children that many of them have been wicked. Uh, and he's going to bless Joseph and his sons, so his grandsons, and we get to the end. So, verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son, Joseph, has come to you. Then Israel, remember Israel is the new name for Jacob, so Jacob and Israel, it's the same person. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob, so dad, said to Joseph, the son, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and I will multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So remember, when God spoke to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 12, he said... I'm going to make a family through you, Abraham. The world is whack. It's fallen. But I'm going to redeem this world through you. And I'm going to promise you, Abraham, a couple things. I'm going to promise you, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you offspring. And I'm going to give you land. He told him three things. So I'm going to give you a piece of land. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of kids. And I'm going to bless you and your family so that through you, all the nations of the earth would see that the true God that you worship, that has formed you, that has made you, that is good to you, is worthy to be worshipped and praised and obeyed, right? And so he promises that land and that offspring and that blessing to Abraham. Abraham dies. And he promises the same thing to his son Isaac, right? Isaac dies. And he passes. God is passing down the promise. And he promised the same thing to Jacob. He promises him land and blessing and offspring. And so this Jacob is now at the end of his life and he's in a foreign land. He's not in the land that God had originally told him that he would give him. So it's very important to Jacob that he go back to the land that God had promised him and his forefathers. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, God appeared to me and he promised me this land and offspring and everlasting blessing and possession. So verse 5, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So what's happening here is grandpa is saying, you know, traditionally, I would, as I'm about to die, would just bless my sons. But Joseph, I'm going to bless your two sons that were born here in Egypt, my grandsons. And they're going to really be mine in the sense that they are going to be partakers or sharers in the blessing of me, the father, which would be unusual at that point. So really, it's not like at the end of his age, Jacob is saying, hey, I'm taking your two kids, you know, my grandsons. It's more Jacob honoring Joseph and saying, I, because you've been so good to our family, I'm going to bestow this fatherly blessing on your kids, my grandkids, that were born outside of the land. So it's a great blessing and honor for Jacob to bless Joseph and his children in this way. So skip down to verse 17. So what happens in the, the verses that we're skipping is that Jacob, Grandpa Jacob, taking the two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, puts his hands on the younger one to bless him first. And Joseph says, no, 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 hey, Dad, no, 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 bless the older one first, right? And, and then Dad Jacob says, no, no, this is the way it's going to be. So verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the, hand, on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Now, what's happening here is that instead of doing the traditional blessing, the firstborn son, which would have been the natural human order to receive the, the blessing from the previous generation, 
Jacob is going against the grain and he's blessing the younger instead of the older. And Jacob is familiar with this, isn't he? Because he was the younger that was blessed by God above his older brother Esau. So what's happening here? Is Jacob just kind of, you know, I like, I like Ephraim. He's a little bit better. He was, he was a little bit better looking. He did better in school and, you know, he's the stud athlete. So I'm going to put my blessing on the younger son. No, that's not what's going on. This is just another picture to remind God's people and to remind us that the blessing that God bestows is not dependent necessarily on human logic or reasoning or merit. And that is good news, right? Because none of us, very few of us, are logically in line to receive God's blessing. In fact, that, friends, that's the message of the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 1, where, where the Apostle Paul says, hey, Listen, church, not many of you are wise. Not many of you are noble birth. Not many of you really grew up in good, solid homes. You guys are train wrecks. But the, and I'm paraphrasing here. This isn't exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1. But he says, the good news is that God delights in cutting against the grain of what we think is logical and setting his love on people who we wouldn't ordinarily think would receive it. That's what's happening when God is cutting against the grain through Jacob and blessing the second son. Friends, don't just read that and say, oh, well, that's kind of boring. We're just reading about grandpa blessing some grandchildren. Friends, what should leap from the page when you read that is that God is not bound by human tradition or logic or order, but God can and does bless people who don't deserve in the human ordering of events blessing. And that, friends, is good news. That's, that's grace, right? All right, I'm excited about it. You guys aren't. Great. Praise God. So, verse 20, he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel, will pronounce blessings. Say, God, make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Okay, so he blesses the grandsons. Let's skip to Genesis chapter 49, verse 1 and 2. And so what's going to happen? He's done blessing the grandsons. Now he's going to bless his sons. And remember, his sons were, I mean, they were, uh, they were a rough crew, man, right? I mean, if it was modern, Jacob would have spent a whole bunch of time down at the recorders, down, downtown, 10th Street, you know, right in that little court there, he would have spent a whole bunch of time bailing his sons out of juvie, is what we used to call it in California, juvenile detention. I don't even know if we have these here. So I hope we do. I know, I'm sure there's, well, I mean, I guess I hope we don't have bad kids, but anyway, I hope... <laughs> Certainly, there's some sort of societal structure for teenagers that are out of bounds with the law. But anyway, Jacob is about to bless his sons. Verse 1, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to your father. So he's going to, we won't take the time to read all of them. We'll settle down in a couple. But what happens is he, he starts to bless and really foretell the future of his sons. And a lot of it's in line with their behavior in the past. He's going to really speak quite harshly to Reuben and Simeon. Remember how wicked they were? They were the older brothers that um, destroyed. They, they massacred that whole village that, um, where the two men that, that, that raped their daughter, I mean their sister Dinah lived at. And so instead of just doing kind of understandable vengeance against just these guys that raped their sister, they wipe out the whole city. They were, they were murderous, um, off-the-hook, violent men. And as Jacob's about to die, he's saying, look, you, you, guys, are, you guys have been punks, and the, the, it's going to be hard for you because this is the way you've lived. But through Jacob, we also see him speak words of grace over some of the wicked sons just because of God's sovereign grace. So verse, skip down to verse 8. We see Judah. Remember Judah? Judah was one of the worst of the cats in the crew. I mean, Judah, <laughs> Judah, remember him, Genesis 38? He had this daughter-in-law named Tamar, and Judah's son died, and so he gives his daughter-in-law Tamar to two other of his sons, and they also die. And he's thinking, 
this girl's cursed, so I'm not going to give her to the next son because you know, she's like some sort of black widow bad luck charm. And so he just sort of casts Tamar off, treats her just horribly. And Tamar's like, uh-uh, I have an this, right? And so Tamar then very deceitfully and sinfully dresses up as a woman of ill repute. We've got kids in the room. I think we know what's going on here, right? And she seduces her father-in-law, takes a couple mementos from the occasion, his staff and cloak and a few other things. She becomes pregnant by that meeting. Later on, Judah says, is confronted by some of his other servants and says, hey, you got this lady over here that is pregnant and she's committed adultery. What should we do with her? And Judah, not realizing that it's his daughter-in-law, his widowed daughter-in-law, who he got in that situation, says, burn her at the stake. And then they say, no, uh, oh, but time out. Um, it's actually Tamar because she has your staff and your cloak, and so uh, I think you're kind of involved in this, Judah, right? So that Judah, that Judah, who then chapters later we say, we say we saw that God worked a wonderful work of grace in his life because that wicked Judah then becomes the one who defends uh, who defends Benjamin and is willing to lay down his life for his brother where he was so wicked before. Now that Judah, who's now redeemed, this is what God, through Jacob, says to Judah. Judah, Judah, who used to be the worst of the crew, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Verse 10, the scepter or the staff, which would denote leadership and rule and reign. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall the obedience shall be the obedience of the people. So what's going on? Remember when we went through Genesis 38 and we looked at how how wicked Judah was and then we find out later that Judah has a change of heart and God redeems him. When Wayne walked us through Genesis 38, he took us to Matthew chapter 1 that shows that Judah and his descendants become the line of Christ. So God, through wicked Judah, brings this rule, this, this scepter, this kingship of Christ. So God can take wicked, wrecked, worthless people in the eyes of our culture and what we can see in front of us, change their hearts and bring incredible blessing through them. And that's what he's done with, with, with Judah. All right, let's skip down through the next few verses and go to verse 22, which is then where he blesses Joseph, this son who's been wronged and who now, because of his faithfulness, Jacob is blessing. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Who's he talking about there? It's not like Joseph was walking around and literally archers, maybe, maybe he did have some people shooting arrows at him, but I think that's a metaphorical language for his brothers, who were, his own brothers who were attacking him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So despite the fact that he was being harassed by his brothers, God blessed him and preserved him so that he would be in this position to bless and save his brothers. Verse 25, by the God of your father who will keep you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. So in these this chapter and a half here, we have seen just the power of a father's blessing, especially in the lives of Judah and Joseph and over his grandsons. Let me just take a little, just a, just a quick second to just mention dads. I know it's Mother's Day, <laughs> and so I'm going to talk about dads. That makes sense, right? Dads, do, you, do we recognize just how powerful our words are and how God intends to mediate his blessing 
through the words of fathers. He does that in Judah and Joseph. He mediates. He uses the instrument of the father's blessing, the father's voice to be a blessing over his children. Listen, our children, our our daughters, our sons, hear enough wicked messages in this world. Oh, that their hearts and their ears would be filled with good and gracious and pure words from dad. Uh, I think that these two chapters are a great, a great picture of the power of a father's word, a blessing spoken, spoken over a son. Okay, let's keep going. Now, promises long for, so let's skip verse 27 and go to verse 28 of chapter 49. And we're going to see, remember, just to recalibrate us here, that God had promised this family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons, he had promised them land, offspring, and blessing. And we're going to get to the end of Genesis, and we're going to think, if we just kind of read this on the surface and we didn't really understand the deeper thing what's going on here, we're going to see this family that God had promised land to, these fathers, they're going to die having not received the land that God had promised them. But what we're going to see as we read this is that this land that God had promised them had this sort of initial temporary fulfillment, which will eventually be fulfilled when Israel comes into the promised land after Exodus and through Joshua's leadership. Eventually, in a temporary sense, it's going to be fulfilled. But I think when we read these promises of land, although certainly there is an initial and temporary fulfillment of this promise of God, what it's really speaking of is something not just in these 80 or 90 or in the case of these people who lived longer, their 120 years, but this land is a picture of of eternity, of resting and being with God forever, with Christ in, in not just a physical Canaan, like, you know, land on earth, but a spiritual, eternal reality of, of true rest, of, of the true Canaan land, which is eternity forever with, with God through Christ forever and ever. And we all, unless Jesus comes back which in our lifetime, which would be awesome, by the way. I mean, the older you get, I'm 44 now, and um, I didn't used to think about heaven or eternity much at all when I was a younger Christian. Thank you. Little one, I cry out for heaven with you. I come quickly, Lord Jesus. When you see a, 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 just a, a wicked world around us, then there's just something about longing for. Friends, we were not, as we read these chapters, as we read this chapter, I want us to know we were not made for these 80 or 90 years. And if you have bought into a false gospel that God is sort of here to make your existence and life in these 80 or 90 years comfortable, then you are buying into and believing a false gospel. Don't don't minimize the glory and the beautiful promises that go on forever and ever and ever by picturing and and morphing falsely the God of the Bible down into a sort of good luck charm that's there to give you principles by which you can manage life more successfully. We, to some degree, unless Jesus comes back in our lifetime, which is the great promise and the great hope of the Bible, we will all die unfulfilled in this life, and that's designed that way because we weren't made for this life, right? Do you see, when when God promises Abraham and Isaac and Jacob some dirt in Palestine, friends, what he's promising them is more than just land here on this earth. That is a temporary picture of an eternal reality of forever and ever and ever in the true Canaan, which is with him, with Christ forever, right? And we are designed to ache and to moan and to long for that thing that can never finally and fully be realized in this life. And that's the way it is. I just made my point even before I read the scripture, but let's read it anyway. All right. Verse 28 of 49. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each of them with a blessable suitable to them. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, 
the Hittite in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. So he's saying, it's important for me to go back to that land. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, where the field and the cave that is in, in it where, that were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Skip down to verse 12 of chapter 50. Chapter 50, verse 12. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. And for his son and for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And he, and after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his fathers. So what's happening here is Jacob is saying, take me back to this land and bury me there because God promised it. But then, here's what I want you to see. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. It's in the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament. The New Testament then is going to shed some light on what Jacob was thinking about this land that God had promised him. And this, the, the New Testament writer is going to make the point that we were just making just a second ago that God has promised ultimately these promises to be fulfilled, not finally and fully here in this life, but to be fulfilled in Christ forever and ever. So listen to how the New Testament writer of Hebrews interprets the promise of the land and the promise of being back in this Canaan land for these these forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and and Joseph. Verse 8 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So remember, God called him and said, go to this land which I'm giving you. And he went out not knowing where he was going. (laughs) Friends, isn't that just the way the Christian life is, right? I mean, we want answers. God, tell me what's going to happen in two to five, three years. No, no, just go, right? I mean, we we could stop there and do like a serious little rabbit trail, couldn't we? But we won't. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise. That's the Canaan land. That, Jacob is saying, take my bones back to. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So God's not only promised dad, he's promised son, and he's promised grandson. I'm going to give you this land. Okay, but then the writer of Hebrews is going to, he's going to, he's going to take this sort of physical promise of the land... And he's going to magnify it. And he's going to say, it was actually about something bigger and greater. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Skip down to verse 13 of Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. In other words, Jacob and Isaac and Abraham all die, not fully realizing and receiving these promises that God gave them of land and blessing and offspring, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So they could see, okay, it's not going to come totally to pass in my life. I'm going to die. But they knew that life was more than just these 80 or in their case 120 or 140 years. That God was good for his promise. That there's something that comes after this. So it goes on, verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had no opportunity. They would have had opportunity to return. Listen to verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, right? So what's happening there is that these old men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph eventually all die having not fully realized in this life this physical promise of the land, and they died because knowing that God was good because they began to see that ultimately the way God would fulfill it was not just in this life, 
but in the life to come, the city that God is building for his people forever and ever and ever. And then if we could have the time, we'd skip to John chapter 14 where Jesus says, what does he say to his disciples when they're nervous about his, his leaving them? He says, no, 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 listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you. A city with many mansions. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be your heavenly abode. This city was never meant to be a city here on this earth. This life that we live was never meant to be fully enjoyed and realized here on this earth because it will always, always, always disappoint us because this world is broken. But God is reconciling this world and building a world for his people to come. Now here's the deal, friends. I know the deal. You're like, okay, Brad, I mean, I, I kind of get this spiritual point, but you know what? It's really hard for us because we're Americans. And here's the problem. Here's why this sometimes just doesn't resonate with us, right? Because we are, most of us in this room, and I definitely include myself in this, we are middle to upper middle class to very upper middle class Americans, and we've never wanted for anything, and we have bought into even subconsciously the lie that we can just kind of make our life good here on this earth, and we are so satisfied with, with, with this life that it's just foreign to our lives to be motivated by the next. And we have reduced... This is where it gets a little, it's been, it's been cool up to this point, but this is where I start stepping on my toes and yours, right? It is hard for us to long for anything but this life. And when we do that, friends, we miss the point of the gospel. We miss the point of the Bible. We read these stories just like, just like history and mere fables, and we miss the gospel in them, Right? Because, let's just admit it, and let's just have a group repentance session here. We, we, are, we are seduced by, by the, the, the fleeting pleasures of this life. And for us to be motivated by eternity and to be motivated by the promise that is to come just sort of feels overly spiritualized and strange to us, doesn't it? But I tell you what, it doesn't, it doesn't feel that way to Middle Eastern Christians right now who are worshiping for fear of their life. It doesn't feel that way to those 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians who had their heads taken off on a beach by wicked and satanic men. Friends, it's this type of vision of what life is all about that allows people to long for the only thing which will truly satisfy, which is Christ. Listen, and I think this is a description, I think, of, of much of the American church, and I pray that it would not be the case here, that we would fight against this. Listen to what John says at the, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. This is a word from my soul and for yours too, I trust. Verse John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's saying there's this trick that we sort of fall into where we get satisfied. Now, friends, I am not saying that um, we should not thank God for the blessing. Like, like, don't go to lunch this afternoon at Grandma's house and say, you know, Brad read a verse about not loving the things of this world and enjoying things. And so, Grandma, get this roast beef out of my face. I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to fast until Jesus comes back. <laughs> you know? No. But do you see how easy like this world can seduce us? And we can think that God is somehow bound to bless us and make the promised land here and now? And when we buy into that lie, it will always disappoint. And it will always, it, it'll turn into an idol. And we will, we, will, we will begin to long for created things rather than finding joy in the one who created them, who alone can satisfy our hungry hearts, as Logan read for us this morning out of Psalm 107. 
And so there's this beautiful gospel balance. It's not rejecting the things of this world. And, you know, they, they did that in the early church. So when, when the church became sort of Christianized in, with the Roman Empire, many Christians were so disgusted with the ex- excesses of the Roman church early on in the 300s that, that there were these desert fathers that went out into the desert and they would just beat themselves to sort of like proclaim their disgust with, with the excesses of the church. I, I, although I kind of appreciate their, their, their spiritual fervor, I'm not advocating that we shove grandma's roast beef back at her face and say, no, I'm not going to enjoy the pleasures of this world. But I think that our danger is that we are so centered on eight, these 80 or 90 years that we, 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 need to, we need to have like a course correction and say, no, only God will satisfy. And we need to be like Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and realize the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what God has done in Christ and to realize that God, thank you for this world. Like, thank you for my family. Thank you for the blessings that you've given us. Thankful that we can rearrange things and build a wall and that we can sit in a sanctuary that smells like paint. And thank you for the fact that God has been good to us and how he's blessed us. But let's not cling to these things because the promise is so much bigger than these 80 or 90 years. It's eternity with Christ forever and ever and ever. Oh, that God would work that in my soul and in your soul. Okay, let's finish up. That's promises longed for very quickly now grace given. When Joseph, verse 15 of chapter 50, verse 15, chapter 50, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, oh man, Joseph's, he's just been playing along up to this point. He was gracious to us. We sold him into slavery, but now that dad's out of the picture, Joseph is going to bring down the hammer on us. So they're scared. They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. I don't know if that actually happened. There's some dispute in the commentaries whether or not they were kind of making up that sort of note or not. <laughs> Who knows? But anyway, they send this note to Joseph saying, Hey, Dad said give us a kind of a free pass. And now, please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. And this works just more brokenness and compassion in Joseph. And it says that Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Really, I think this is the first time where they sort of outright admit that they sinned against him. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And here's verse 20. I think a a wonderful, one of the most important verses in all of the Bible, a great summary of Genesis up to this point. Listen to what uh, Joseph says to his brothers in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Friends, listen to what happens in that, what's going on in that verse. Joseph is looking at all of the evil that his brothers did to him. That there's this one side of of the coin, and it's God allowing, not intervening, in fact, bringing to pass through his sovereign providence the sin that was committed against Joseph, the selling into slavery by his brothers. Then he's in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife hits on him, and he righteously resists her advances, and then he gets thrown into prison. God allows that to happen. Could have intervened, but didn't. Then Joseph is in prison. He interprets the dream of these two cats, and they come to, they come to pass, and one of them gets out of prison, and the other one is killed after he gets out of prison, just like Joseph said it would happen. And the one guy who got out of prison is now before Pharaoh, forgets Joseph. He sinned against again, and he spends another couple years in prison. And then God causes Pharaoh to have a dream, and for Pharaoh to want his dream to be interpret, interpreted. And then this one guy that forgot about Joseph remembers about Joseph, and he says, okay, there's this guy in prison that can interpret your dream. And then finally Joseph becomes the leader of Egypt. All of this happened... And God was somehow allowing it to happen. But on the other side of the coin, God is arranging all of these things to bring Joseph to a place where he would be in a position, even though he was sinned against horribly, to be in a position to be able to save his brothers. Friends, who does Joseph 
sound like? What is the story of Joseph? Who does it picture? It pictures something far more wicked than 12 brothers sinning against their one little brother. This is a picture of Jesus who God ordained the sin that would happen to him. Acts 2 and Acts 4 says that God predestined and brought about the crucifixion of his son so that he would die to bear the wrath of God for our sins and rise again in victory. God ordained the greatest evil in the universe to bring about the greatest good in the universe, which is the salvation of his people. And through Joseph, God gives us an early Old Testament picture of the cross, of how Jesus, how we as his brothers have sinned against him, and he lays down his life for us. And even though he could have punished us, he does not. He bears our sin on the cross, and he satisfies God's justice and satisfies God's wrath, and then rises again in victory. Friends, maybe you're just here with your mom for Mother's Day and you've never heard the gospel. Friends, that's the gospel right there. The point of today is not just some really sort of interesting story about some brothers that did each other wrong, and now one of them got to a position where he kind of saves the other ones. Friends, all of this is a picture of the whole message of the Bible, of what God has done in Christ. See, we are like those brothers. We have all offended our Father. We have all rebelled against him. And God sends Jesus, his son, to bear our sin, to bear the punishment that should have been ours. And God allows Jesus to be crucified by his people, by us, to bear our sin so that God's justice and God's wrath would be poured out on Jesus and not on those who would trust in Jesus. And so now humanity, friends, is divided into two groups. Those who are trusting in the Son who was sinned against by his brothers and those who are still trusting in themselves. That's what this story is a picture of, is will you trust in Jesus? Will your hope be in him? That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of Genesis. That's the message of Joseph's life. And it's the message of the Bible. Will you trust in Jesus? And here's here's the deal, friends, and I end with this. The message of the gospel, again, is not just, oh, get your life right with a God who's got his arms folded up in heaven, who's disgusted with you, and if you don't kind of make things right with him, then, you know, you, he's just kind of grumpy, and then you gotta, you got to trust in Jesus, and then kind of come be part of this family, and, and then just kind of lose joy, and just sort of be sort of, you know, a, a neutered, cut your hair, tuck in your shirt, sort of, you know, unjoyful person. No, friends, he, he pours out his wrath on his son, like he did on Joseph so that we can trust in him and receive like the promise, the beauty, the joy of what it means to be in the family of God, right? So I'm not saying just do this because there's a grumpy dad up there and if you don't trust in Jesus then, then things are gonna go badly for you. No, no, it's, 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 it's so much more than that. Trust in Jesus and his beauty and what he's done because when you do that, there's so much more than just these 80 or 90 years to live for. There's joy forever and ever and ever and ever with Christ no matter what this life may bring. Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish pastor back in the 1800s, uh, preached this sermon that I think is one of the best sermons ever preached, and it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Not explosive, but expulsive, meaning this new affection expels old affections. And he talks about this very point, that when we see and behold what God has done in Christ, in the gospel, it becomes, it's so beautiful when we see it. If we see it, it is so beautiful. It's a new affection that crowds out or expels old lesser affections. And I think that's the point of, of what I want us to see here. And this is what Chalmers says. I'll read this quote and then we'll be done. The only way to dispossess an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. So the only way to, to truly like not be caught up in these 80 or 90 years and to have your soul captivated by something. It, it, the way you fight out lesser beauties, and the way you stop 
what you finally stop giving in to just counterfeit joys is not by gritting your teeth, but by looking at and gazing something more beautiful than this counterfeit beauty. That's what Chalmers is saying. The only way to dispossess an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. In the gospel, meaning the good news of what God has done in Christ, do we so behold God as that we may love God? It is there, when we see that, it is there and there only where God stands revealed as an object of confidence to sinners, that the spirit of adoption is poured upon us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires and is the only way that deliverance is possible. Friends, that's what I want to end on as we end Genesis, that God is so good. All of these pictures that we've been seeing along are pictures of what God has done in Christ to make a people for himself and give them more than just 80 or 90 years of principles to live by, but he's given them the beauty and the satisfying, unquenchable joy of Christ forever and ever and ever. And when you see that and when you behold that, it becomes so beautiful and irresistible that it's the only way to crowd out and expel things that will destroy us. Oh, that we would see that as we end Genesis. Oh, that the expulsive power of the gospel would fill and satisfy our hungry souls. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we close our time in Genesis, I pray that you'd make it so much more to us than just some moral principles by which to live by. I pray that the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the true son Jesus, who endured our sin, who endured betrayal, who is the true and better Joseph, who laid down his life for his brothers and sisters, that his work, that his grace, that his beauty would become so much more beautiful to us than any counterfeit joy that this world would seduce us with. For my friends in this room who've never seen that, Lord, would you, would you captivate their heart with that picture of Christ who alone is the one who can satisfy our souls and that following him is not trading joy for begrudging obedience, but following him is the only true pathway to real joy that lasts. Lord, would you help us see that? Would you help people that came into this room unbelieving see that? And would you help believers in Jesus see that afresh this morning? And would it cause worship and joy, abiding joy in us? Lord, I pray that you do this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.